Romans chapter 16, and this will be the, the final full sermon from the book of Romans um, here. So uh, congratulations, you did it. We made it all the way through. Uh, we will cover most of the chapter tonight. Um, and the plan is we'll, we'll get the last little bit um, over our uh, Thanksgiving dinner that we'll talk about here later. Uh, but tonight we're going to look in verses 1 through 23. And if you just skim through this passage, you'll see that there's a ton of names, a ton of really difficult to pronounce names um, that I'm sure I'm going to trip and stumble all over uh, tonight. There's names in three different languages to contend with. So I, can, I can't even speak English. So um, it's going to be fun. But what I want you to see in this passage and sort of the main thing I want to emphasize is the importance of church membership and the hard work that church work can be and is. Um, and so Coram Deo Christian Fellowship is a student organization that is a ministry of the local church. It's a ministry that is supported by Perimeter Road Baptist Church. Um, and the intention is uh, to be a presence of the local church on campus, but also to connect college students to the local church. Um, and um, because when we look at the New Testament, what we'll see tonight is that being part of a local church fellowship is just assumed in the New Testament. Um, some people will say, well, you won't find church membership in the Bible. There's no command that says you must be a member of a local church. And you're right about that. You won't find a, a, a command that says thou shalt join a local church. But what you do find when you read the New Testament is the assumption that you're going to be part of a local church. You're going to be part of a body, part of a people. Um, there's the assumption that because there are elders, pastors who are supposed to shepherd their flock, that they know who the flock is. You know, imagine a shepherd, you know, wandering out into some random field being like, are you my sheep? Are you my sheep? Will you follow me? Can I be your shepherd? No, that's not how it works. A shepherd has his sheep that he's responsible for. For shepherding and so it would not make sense for a shepherd of a church to not know who his flock is uh, most of the epistles in the New Testament are written to local congregations local contexts um, and so while there is no direct command to join a local church it's simply assumed that you if you are a follower of Christ you will be a part of Christ's body so the church capital C, the, the Holy Catholic Church that we just confessed from the Creed, is this universal body of Christ from beginning of time to the end of time. All those who are faithful in Christ, who are in Christ by faith, uh, are a member of this universal church. So that means that, that Christians here, us Christians gathered here, as well as Christians in Taiwan and Japan and Canada and Waycross, Georgia, these are all members of the church, the great uh, ecclesia, uh, the, the gathering of the body of Christ. But that global universal Catholic church is represented and manifest in local churches, in local bodies. So you can't be a part of the global universal church without being a part of the local church. Um, it's been said you can't have God for your father if you won't have the church for your mother. And so the importance of church membership is essential for us uh, to talk about. It's assumed in the New Testament. Um, and when you look in places, for example, where we'll be tonight in Romans chapter 16, you'll see that these people knew each other and that they were regular parts of particular fellowships, that they could be um, counted to be there um, and greet one another and to be a part in a, an important part of the body. You know, we talked uh, several weeks ago about the importance of our, the body coming together and being made up of individual parts and individual gifts in order to serve the greater body. You can't do that if you're not a regular part of a particular fellowship. So there's many places or many things we could emphasize 
in chapter 16. But what I want to emphasize tonight is the hard work of church membership. The hard work of church membership. So with that said, let's stand together um, and read the word. And I think it's also important to note as we come to this passage that seems really insignificant. It's just a bunch of greetings. Remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So this is not a waste of your time. This is profitable. This is the word of God for you tonight. And here's what uh, it says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermos, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philagus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the reminder that it is all breathed out by you and pros uh, profitable and useful. And God, we pray that it would uh, produce fruit in our lives as we seek to apply it and obey it and to glorify you through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. So where do you begin? Where do you begin a sermon with all that? Greet this person. Greet that person. And greet them and their mama. You know, their mama and them. That's how we would say it. Where do you begin? There's many places uh, that you could go. There's many places you can uh, emphasize. And, and when you actually begin to read and study on the context of reading uh, commentaries and things like that, there's some very interesting things you can learn. Um, through this. Um, one thing is how in the world does Paul know so many people in Rome? He had not yet been to Rome at this point in writing this letter. Um, so there's lots of things that we can take away from that in terms of how the church related to one another in this time. Um, 
you see a mixture, as I said, there's three different languages. You see Greek and Latin names, you see um, Jewish names, uh, you see people who call, Paul calls his kinsmen, you see a lot of women names, um, just across the board. So what I wanted us to look at tonight for the purposes of this ministry and our time together and, and considering the themes that we've talked about through the book of Romans is this hard work of church membership because hard work is mentioned twice in this passage. Um, it's mentioned twice. It's mentioned of Mary in verse 6 and Persis in verse 12. Their hard work for the Lord is emphasized. Um, and so uh, I think that's a good summary for all this work because church life isn't easy. Being a church member, being a faithful church member isn't easy, but it's worth it. Um, often it is a hard work. It is a labor for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one is the difficulty of sin and the difficulty of opposition to the gospel of Christ. You've got the difficulty of personal offense and relational conflict that comes when sinners live closely in proximity to one another and deal with issues of great significance. So it's, it's difficult work. It's not easy, but it is worth it. And so we could be here for hours covering each of these people who Paul greets. Um, and I promise you we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to look at seven types of work or seven aspects of the hard work of church membership that just sort of jumped out of the page for me. This is, there's no particular um, reason for emphasizing these other than I wanted to emphasize them because they stood out to me. They were significant to me. And so um, that's where we're going. And I'll just kind of list these off really quickly and then we'll go through them one at a time. The first is patronage or helping. Second is sacrifice. The third is perseverance. The fourth is mothering. The fifth is vigilance. The sixth is obedience. And the seventh is victory. So that's where we're going. So let's start with the first right here in verse one, patronage or helping. And we start verse one where Paul is commending to the Roman church our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincrae. Um, so Phoebe is believed to be the person who delivered the letter to Rome. So remember, the book of Romans is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. But Paul didn't personally deliver this letter. He sent it by someone. And it is um, believed that Phoebe is the one who carried this letter to Rome and Paul is commending her uh, to the Roman church to receive her. And he tells them um, specifically to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her, to help her in whatever she may need from you. And he said, why? Because she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Um, this word patron, uh, is, is a hapax legomenon. It's a word that is only used once in the scripture. This particular Greek word that is translated patron in the ESV is only used one time in the New Testament. It is similar to the word translated help earlier in the sentence, um, but they're not the exact same word, but they're related. A lot of other translations translate it as help. And so it might say, for she has been a help of many rather than a patron of many. And so because this is one of those hotpox words, it, it can sometimes be difficult to discern exactly what the meaning is in a given context if there aren't any particular context clues. And so there are a wide range of possibilities. Um, more than likely, it seems to be the opinion of most commentators and scholars that that we're talking about patronage here or someone who is a benefactor. So do y'all know a patron? I think we know more about this today because of Patreon than we knew, like, than I knew when I was younger. When I was your age, I didn't know what a patron was probably. But now because of Patreon, we know. But, but back in the ancient world, the way artists and thinkers and people like that made a living 
is they had a wealthy person who was their patron, who supported them. So the way a, a musician might make a living is by producing music um, and having a wealthy landowner who supports their art financially. And so potentially Phoebe could be playing this type of role for the Apostle Paul and others in the church. She could potentially be a wealthy lady um, who is supporting financially the ministry of the gospel. But we don't know that for sure. Um, but if this is the case, we can at least deduce that this is a legitimate work in church life. Um, supporting the work of ministry, leveraging wealth to support the work of the ministry. Um, other options is that she's some type of support staff. Um, one commentator suggests that she could potentially be a, a, a widow who is enrolled into church membership. You see in, in uh, the letters to Timothy, there's criteria for enrolling widows on the role of a church. Um, and this one commentator makes the point that potentially she is serving in an official role in that way. Um, another option is, you know, where you support the work of the ministry would be being like a, uh, a secretary uh, facilitating and assisting um, the work of ministers. Um, I think of helpful roles in church life is just simply being someone who does grunt work. Yeah, where you do things uh, that the ministers, um, if they were to do them, it would take them away from the ministry of the word. Uh, and so when we look at this in, in the Bible, if you'll notice, if you have an ESV, uh, it probably has a footnote after the word servant. Phoebe, a servant of the church. That word servant is the same word we get the word deacon from. And so because of this passage, um, some uh, folks believe that, that the office of deacon uh, can be held by women as well as men, and they would point to Phoebe as being an example of that because the word is used here. And so remember the word deacon literally means servant. In Romans chapter 13, uh, the civil magistrate, so in other words, the, the emperor or the governor is called a deacon of God. And so just because they're called a deacon doesn't mean they hold the office of deacon that is described elsewhere in Scripture. Um, so to boil it all down, what we can know for sure about Phoebe is that she worked hard for the Lord, that she was a servant, and that she was a great help. She was an essential helper to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he says to many others. And so maybe you see yourself in that role of being a helper. Maybe one day when you guys get your degree and, and you go into whatever career field you end up going into and you start rolling in the dough, you can be a patron or a benefactor for a poor old preacher like me. Or maybe you have free time on your hands because you find yourself as a widow. And you can serve the church in a, an official capacity. Maybe you could be a, on staff. Maybe you could run errands. Maybe you could be a secretary. But you see yourself as being an essential helper, a deacon, a servant of the church. So that's Phoebe. A lot can be said about her. Just as a side note, there is no biblical evidence that Phoebe was a pastor or that Phoebe uh, preached. Some people say because she delivered the letter that she preached to the church of Rome. Um, this is not a text that is a valid support for female preachers or females holding the office of elder when other clear passages of the scripture say otherwise. Um, but Phoebe was a great help when Paul thinks of who do I greet first? Who do I commend first? I guess he's not necessarily greeting her, but he's sending her. He's, he's commending her. Phoebe comes to mind. The next uh, thing I'd like to emphasize here that we see in this passage is works of sacrifice. Works of sacrifice. These are uh, essential. Because when you think of Christ, what was Christ's greatest work for us? Was it not a sacrificial work? 
was not giving of himself. And we see this sacrificial work mentioned in Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. Uh, you also see uh, Prisca in Scripture as Priscilla. Priscilla. So Prisca is the shortened form of Priscilla, much like Silas is the shortened form of Silvanus. And so Priscilla and Aquila, we see elsewhere in Scripture. We see particularly in Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, we learn a lot about them. They were forced to leave Rome by Emperor Claudius. Emperor Claudius issued a decree that forced all the Jews out of Rome. Um, this happened sometime, there's debate among historians, but sometime in the late 40s, maybe the early 50s AD. Not 1940s or 1950s, like 40, 40, and 50. And remember that Romans was written in the late 50s. So what apparently has happened is Priscilla and Aquila earlier in uh, their life, in the 40s or 50s, were kicked out of Rome under the decree from Claudius and have now returned here later in the 50s to, uh, to Rome and they're ministering in Rome. We learn in Acts chapter 18 that they are fellow tent makers. So they are in the same career, they have the same profession as the Apostle Paul. They make tents and so they, they hung out together a lot when they met. They were in the same profession, profession, they lived together, they worked together. And so they were close to the Apostle Paul. And what Paul emphasizes here in verse 3 and 4 is how they risked their lives for him. They risked their lives for the Apostle Paul. They risked, he says they risked their necks. For his life. And that is a powerful image when you think about what was the preferred method of execution in the Roman Empire? It was a beheading, right? They risked their neck. So think about that. They stuck their neck out for me. I mean, they put their own lives on the line, literally, for me. So what is he referring to? Most likely, he's referring to um, the riot that happened in Ephesus. A riot happened in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 that was the result of the gospel. So when's the last time you went to the city and started preaching the gospel and a riot broke out? If we went downtown Valdosta and started preaching the gospel and a riot started, people would blame us, wouldn't they? They would say we weren't being very Christ-like. But what did happen? Everywhere the apostles went, riots broke out. And the particular, here's what really caused the, the riot in Ephesus. Um, the people who made the idols converted to Christ. They were no longer making the idols, and people stopped worshiping the idols in Ephesus, and that caused a problem in Ephesus because the God was not being worshiped. And there's this great story um, in Acts chapter 19 of, of them you know, just screaming out and plugging their ears and causing this riot. And Paul wanted to go into it, but they, it says some disciples prevented him, would not let him. Um, and so most likely this is what he's referring to. Um, there in Ephesus. There was also potential, they were also together in Corinth, um, so there could have been something to happen there that Scripture doesn't record as well. But it's clear that they risked their necks for Paul. Um, Priscilla and Aquila were very influential disciplers, so everywhere you read of them, they're discipling someone. They're, the church is meeting in their house, they're discipling people, and one of their more famous disciples is Apollos. Apollos um, is known as being a great preacher, a great orator in Scripture. He's mentioned in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as well. And it was, he was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. And they were doing this at a time in which it was very dangerous to do that. It was very dangerous to be someone who had a reputation for making disciples of Christ. But that was Priscilla and Aquila. Another thing I wanted to mention about them is they are always mentioned together in Scripture. Every time there's a reference to Aquila or Priscilla, they're together. And I think that's a great example of a married couple on mission together. That husband and wife in Christ should be always mentioned together. Their work should be uh, one, works of one flesh. And so I, I hope that one day you guys refer to Clinton Kalin, right? Or Priscilla's first, Kalen and Clinton. Right, so that my ministry is inseparable for her ministry. Her ministry is inseparable for my ministry because it, it really is. Right? And that's the nature of 
a, a couple on mission. And so when you guys are looking for spouses, you, you look for someone who will be on mission with you. Men, you look for a woman who will come alongside you and your mission for Christ and be a, an essential helper to you. And women, you look for a man who is on the mission of God and that you can come alongside and you can be part of his mission so that you're always mentioned together. So Priscilla and Aquila modeled these works of discipleship and highlighted here is their works of sacrifice where they risked their lives to meet. Number three, perseverance. Perseverance. There are three people in this passage that are highlighted as early believers. Um, Epinetus, Epinetus, I bet it's probably Epinetus, Epinetus was the first convert in Asia. That's a cool like title. I hope he had a plaque hanging on his wall. The first convert in Asia. And uh, Andronicus and Junia, Paul says, they were in Christ before me. Notice that Andronicus and Junia were also prisoners for Christ. They're fellow prisoners. And so what I just wanted to highlight here is church life is lifelong. Sometimes, like you guys, are in the early years of Coram Deo. And I told you guys the very first semester, right as we were getting started, that you guys will never see the glory days of Coram Deo. But you are building a foundation upon which, Lord willing, uh, classes of university students after you will be blessed by, much like these believers who came after Epinetus and Andronicus and Junia were blessed through their involvement and their uh, investment in their churches. And being the first on the scene isn't always the easiest. It's hard work. There's more um, consequence if you're not there. Uh, it requires sacrifice, as we saw before. But one thing that I think is important, and it's even important for a college ministry with young people, and you, you learn this as you spend time in a church. So I've, if I've been a part of the same local church for over a decade now, I've seen this, is that church life is lifelong and that things change. Things change. As young people, often, I'll include myself in this, we're the ones driving the change. We want to drive the change. But we also have to remember those who were there before us. And sometimes that change isn't easy on them. So one day, Lord willing, you will be the old person in a local church. And the youngsters behind you will be driving change. Times are changing. But we're called to persevere. There are different seasons in ministry. There's different seasons in church life. There's going to be seasons which things are flourishing and things are happening and there's excitement and you're getting people saved and baptized every time you turn around. And then there are dry seasons. Then there are seasons where there's a moral failure from a leader in your local church. And what are we going to do now? What are you going to do now when half the church goes somewhere else? Are you going to stick it out? Are you going to persevere because of your commitment to the church? There are different seasons. Some are good, some are bad, but all are worth persevering through. And we're called to be faithful through all of it. Imagine the changes that Epinetus saw as the first convert in Asia, as things continued to grow and as the gospel literally exploded across this land. So you're called to persevere. Number four, uh, mothering. Mothering. Notice how many women are listed in these greetings. Uh, it's often mentioned that the Bible... Um, has a high view of the work of women and a high view of women in general. That women are treated as equal co-heirs in Christ in the New Testament and that their work is legitimate and necessary. And Romans 16 is no exception to that. Um, you can see there uh, Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, and then maybe Junia and Julia, I, although there's, we're not quite sure if 
either one or both of them might potentially be uh, men's names. We're not exactly sure. Um, and then uh, Nerusa's sister um, and the mother of Rufus. And so there, there's lots, lots of women mentioned here. Um, and they have various roles and types of service. Notice that all the women mentioned that were given details of their work, it's not all the same. It wasn't, uh, you know, Prisca working in the daycare. Mary, thank you for working in the daycare. Junia, thank you for working in the daycare. Right? That's not what it is. There are different types of ministry according to their various callings and vocations in life. Uh, uh, Prisca's ministry as the wife of Aquila and hosting the church in their home might look a lot different than Phoebe, who is a single woman who's traveling abroad to take the gospel to different churches. Like the callings in the ministry work looks different. Um, but one important role of women in the church is mothering. Like women were created to be mothers according to nature. And we see this example in Rufus's mother. So Rufus is mentioned here, greet Rufus and his mother. And then um, what does he say? I didn't write it down. Uh, who has been a mother to me as well. And that's what I wanted to emphasize. So Rufus's mother had been a mother to the Apostle Paul. She wasn't his biological mother. But what Paul's saying is that she played a motherly role in my life. I can imagine being a bachelor, being a single man, traveling all over the, the globe, getting in shipwrecks and getting beaten and things like that. You need a mama to take care of you. All the boy, mama's boys in here say amen, right? Right? And I can just imagine Rufus's mother being that, that lady caring for the Apostle Paul, cooking him some chicken noodle soup when he was weary, right? Now, there's one really cool thing that I have to emphasize here before I move on to application is who is Rufus's mother? Who is Rufus's mother? This is, what I'm about to say, is not a lock and key argument. Don't take this to the bank. Put this in the category of highly likely very probable, but not certain, okay? But let me give you the scenario of who Rufus's mother could potentially be. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is going to be crucified, he's beaten, he's carrying his cross up um, to be crucified, and the Romans have this man named Simon, Simon of Cyrene, carry the cross for Jesus. You're familiar with this, right? Simon the Cyrene carries the cross for Jesus. Well, Mark includes this really interesting parenthetical when he describes Simon. He says that Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. This is in parentheses. So Mark found it necessary to tell us who Rufus and Alexander were. Now, most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written and compiled in Rome. And therefore, the reason that he mentions Rufus and Alexander by name as the sons of Simon is so that they could be a, a witness and a, a validation to what Mark is writing. That, hey, you're, we know Rufus and Alexander. Their, their dad was Simon who carried the cross. Go ask them. Right? And so it makes sense that Rufus being, could be a member of the Church of Rome. And so it's very likely that this Rufus is the same Rufus. So this Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene, which means the wife of Simon of Cyrene played a mother, motherly role in the Apostle Paul's life, continuing to support the work of ministry. That has nothing to do with an application to you in this passage, but I just found it really fascinating and a really actually beautiful uh, story. And so I just hope it's true. It's very probable, and I hope it's true. So what I want to emphasize here is that mothering is an essential work of all women. And how did Rufus's mother play this role? Well, she was actually Rufus's mother, and, and if it's the same one, and Alexander's mother. But she also mothered someone who was not her biological child. She showed uh, care for, she nurtured, 
and, and was warm and tender to someone who needed a mother. And so ladies, whether you have children or not, you have a calling by God to, to mother, to use your motherly, womanly, feminine instincts um, for the good of others, for those who need it, who need your care. And we all need the care of a mother. Jesus says that sometimes following Christ is going to bring a division between fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. That it might, you might lose your father and mother by following Christ. But he says, but you will gain it and, and more. And what I think he means by that is you'll gain it in the church. Not just in eternal life, but in the church you'll find a community with hundreds of mothers. You, didn't, you lost one mother, but you're going to find more mothers. And so, uh, ladies, this is a, a legitimate work for you um, in the local church. And it's exemplified and commended um, in this passage. Number five, uh, vigilance. Vigilance. Um, this passage, he, Paul, as any preacher, can't get finished saying what he's saying without continuing to tack on more stuff at the end. Like if you look in, in, verse, in chapter 15, he basically ends. He ends the book in chapter 15 um, with this um, benediction there. May the, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray and let's head home, right? But no, then he adds tax on chapter 16, right? Uh, oh yeah, I need to greet you guys. And then in 17, he's like, now I appeal to you, brothers. He's back to preaching again. You know, it's like, just let us go home, Paul. He's like, no, he, uh, he's, he's back to preaching. Uh, and I just, I just love that the, our Bible's like that. It reflects the, the human character uh, of humans. <laughs> it was redundant. So he, he closes with a couple more instructions, which are included in the closing greetings. And so I think we can qualify this as a type of work. And it's the work of vigilance. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So part of the work of church life is guarding the purity of the doctrine. Guarding the purity of the doctrine. Be vigilant. How can you do this? One, Develop sound discernment. Develop sound discernment. It's been said, well, discernment is not the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is the ability to discern the difference between right and almost right. So you have to discern and, and, and sorry, you have to um, develop this skill and gift of sound discernment. Be able to know. He says, I want you to know. Um, where did it go? He says, I want you, verse 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So if you're going to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, you need to be able to tell the difference between those two, right? So develop sound discernment. Um, how do you do that? Well, you need to be fluent in Scripture. You need to have a knowledge of the truth. You need to be mature in your faith. You need to be able to recognize counterfeits because you're so acquainted with the original. Be fluent in Scripture. Mature in your faith. Um, to this end, the Apostle Paul prays, uh, says, so that we may, in verse Ephesians 4, 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul's prayer is that we would grow in our knowledge of the word, our knowledge of Christ, and we would reach this level of maturity, full manhood in Christ, and then we would be able to discern, and we won't be uh, tossed to and fro by false doctrine. You also need to learn when division is righteous. Learn when division is righteous. Division is sometimes good. You need to divide, according to this passage, divide from those who are divisive. Divide from those who, who, those who are divisive. Because if you stay united to those who are divisive, 
you're dividing. <laughs> and we don't want to divide, so we need to divide. But you have to divide from the right, for the right reasons. Divide from those who are divisive. What is the particular divisiveness that he tells us to look at? It's the matters of doctrine. They create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So a divide for those people. A divide from false teachers. Divide from people who create divisions in the church based upon false doctrine. Now, uh, a lot of people will say, well, doctrine divides. Right? We don't need to have a high view of doctrine. We don't need to be dogmatic about what we believe because that divides. Right? If you take a firm stance in what you believe to true, be true and someone else takes a firm stance in what they believe to be true and those are at odds, it, it creates division. But that's not the picture we see in Scripture. The Scripture is that it is the truth of the doctrine that we have received that unites us. We're united around this sound teaching. The sound doctrine of the scripture brings us together. So doctrine doesn't divide, doctrine unites. And if doctrine divides and it's a false doctrine that causes division, then that's a righteous division. You should divide over false teaching, is what Paul says here. And this is part of that work of vigilance. Keep a close watch on the teaching. Keep a close watch on the doctrine in the church. Be vigilant. Now, number six, um, obedience. All of this work can be summarized in the word obedience. And Paul says, verse 19, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So all of your work is a work of obedience when done in faith to Jesus. And, and I want to make this challenge to you, this charge. Always obey what is good. Always obey what is righteous. Even when it seems risky, do the right thing. You see, Priscilla and Aquila, they probably had a choice to make. And are we going to risk our lives? Or are we going to let Paul, an apostle of Christ, be put in danger in harm's way? They had a choice to make. And what choice did they, they make? We're going to risk our own lives for the greater glory of God's mission and purposes of redemption. That was a risky choice, but they were blessed because of it. Their faithfulness brought much fruit. So always obey what is good. It's always better to obey than to disobey, especially when you are tempted. The stronger the temptation to disobey, the, more, the harder you need to obey. Go all in. Fear God, not man. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And trust his word above all else. God's word must always be supreme over man's word, over your word. Trust his word above all else and obey. It's the old hymn, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So often being happy is what, uh, the, the quest to be happy is what leads us to distrust and to disobey. But if we only had minds that were renewed according to the word of God, we would know that the only way to be happy is to trust and obey. So may your obedience be known to all. When someone writes a letter to you, may they say that your obedience, your faithfulness to Christ is known. No doubts. You are faithful to Christ and for that I commend you. May that be true of us all. And that leads to the final aspect, in, is a works of victory. A work of victory. Verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. First off, notice this. The God of peace is doing the crushing. The God of peace is engaging in cosmic warfare. 
peace and battling evil are not at odds with one another. In fact, to make peace with evil is evil. Notice that the God of peace is the one fighting and crushing Satan, evil. Now, whose feet? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Paul says, your feet. Your feet. Now, that's interesting. Because if you know your Bibles, this whole idea of Satan being crushed beneath feet should be familiar to you, right? It goes all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 3.15, where God, speaking to the serpent, issuing this curse that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis, who's doing the bruising? The seed of the woman, Jesus, is doing the bruising. But Paul says God will crush Satan beneath the Roman church's feet. Huh. Apparently Paul forgot Genesis 3.15. Or maybe he understood it better than we do. Maybe he understands that Christ works through his body. Remember, he's already laid out the category that we are the body of Christ. We are members of him. And so Christ is not going to crush the head of the serpent without using his foot. He uses his body. Your acts of obedience are Christ's acts in the world. You get that? Those moments of faithful obedience that I just called you to are Christ working in you and through you to accomplish his will in the world. And so we are in this cosmic battle. God is at war with Satan. He is in this cosmic battle and we are caught up into it as he works and fights through us. And this redemption will be fully accomplished. It will be fully accomplished. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's an, an effective, accomplished work. Your work will not be in vain. Every moment of obedience, every moment of faithfulness, every moment of sacrifice will count. It is a blow in the battle against evil. These moments where we gather and we sing, that's part of the battle. So us laughing at each other, trying to learn alto and tenor and having a good time, a fellowship, right? Encouraging one another. Um, but when we lift our voices together, and we proclaim what is true about God and His beauty and His perfection and His works and His flexing, His uh, strong right hand. When we are doing that, we are engaging in this cosmic battle. Our worship is truly warfare. When we sing that that Behold, he comes, he surely comes, the judge of earth to be. His justice in the nation's sight. Uh, I just skipped verses, didn't I? Because he comes, he surely comes, uh, the judge of earth to be. I have it right here. Why not use it? With justice. Here it is. With justice, he will judge the world, all men with equity. The, the powers in the heavenly places hear that proclamation. That Christ came and he continuously comes and is coming and he will crush, he will judge the world. And isn't that the point of the book of Romans? That this gospel of Jesus Christ brings about the obedience of faith to all the nations. That, that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham will bless all the nations of the world. He will defeat all the enemies of God and uh, present the sons of God before all things at the end of time. And so this is really where he brings it all back together. That your embodied life, your church life, 
matters in this cosmic scheme of redemption. And so as we close, I want you to see that all that we have discussed from this book is real. It isn't theoretical. This isn't just high theology that doesn't meet the ground anywhere. It's not hypothetical. It's real life. These truths must be dealt with. They must be apprehended by faith. In other words, you have to claim these truths. You have to, to, to reach out with your faith, as it were, and say, this is mine, and I will obey. I will honor the Lord. So don't walk out of here tonight, having studied the book of Romans over the past year, without claiming these truths by faith. Believe the gospel of justification by Christ's active and passive obedience. Believe that in Christ you have victory over sin and are no longer bound to what has held you captive. Believe that you have an unshakable hope, even in unthinkable suffering. Believe that your heavenly Father set his love on you and chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Believe that this gospel message must be preached to the ends of the world and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe that you must join yourself to a local church and be part of the body of Christ and serve with the gifts that you have been given. Believe that it is your duty before God to welcome the weak in faith and to encourage their walk in Christ. And believe that the work to which we've all been called in Christ is not easy, but it is so worth it. So believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. To God alone be the glory. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is better than gold. It is nourishing to our soul. Uh, it is equipping for the tasks to which you have called us. It is strength for the mission upon which you have sent us. Lord, we ask that Christ be glorified and magnified in our lives, that we are recipients of his grace. And Lord, we do claim these truths by faith. Lord, and I pray that each individual here will personally claim these truths from your word by faith and that they would find themselves in Christ for all of life and that they would live every day before your face in full joy and the full assurance of faith because of the work of Christ in their place. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are busy, a people who are hard workers to bring about the good that you are bringing into this world. And Lord, we are ready for the day in which Satan is finally and forever crushed beneath our feet. Would you give it to us in Jesus' name? Amen.